Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me on a deep dive into the history of my faith, the history of Christianity. From the history of the biblical canon, how the Bible was put together into the early church, the early church fathers, up through into the Reformation and beyond. And it was then, as I began to look into the history of my faith, that I encountered the ancient Catholic Church. And it was then that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about Catholicism, was based in large part on misinformation and, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast served to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week I'm joined by convert Father Scott Wooten. Father Scott was an Anglican of all different kinds of varieties and stripes on a journey looking for the united, the unified, the the one true Church of Christ the church that Christ founded. And in his journey through the Anglican Church, the Anglican Church in North America, through the Church of England, through the Episcopal Church, all different kinds of Anglican stripes and varieties, he he was looking for that, that one thing, that one elusive thing, that communion, that unity, that apostolic succession, where the church that Christ founded, where, where that was. It's a fantastic story. Father Wooten is a great storyteller, and he's a great story to tell, but his conversion experience, his life as an Anglican priest, and what led him eventually, ultimately, into the Catholic Church, and then into the Catholic priesthood as a result. You're going to love this story, I'm sure. This podcast is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. There's a growing number of patrons there, and you guys have my eternal thank you. My eternal thanks. Thanks for supporting this show. It's those financial contributions that help to underpin this thing, and honestly, to keep it going. This is not my full-time job, not even close. I have one of those, and a family too, and all kinds of obligations. But you guys make me, make this thing, you guys make this thing possible. Make it possible for me to do this, and so thank you. If you want to help support this show, all the funds go right back into helping this show to go and grow and keep on going. Please head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic for a one-time donation. Thank you, guys. And now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic conversation with Father Scott Wooten. Please listen and enjoy. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. I've got a fantastic conversation for you today and a great guest. His name is Father Scott Wooten. Father Wooten is convert to the Catholic faith. He has a degree in architecture from Texas Tech University, a master's in divinity from Neshota House Seminary in Wisconsin, and was ordained a deacon and then a priest in the Episcopal Church in 1999. 
Father Scott served in a number of Episcopal and Anglican parishes, and in 2015 was elected rector of St. Peter and St. Paul Anglican Church in Arlington, Texas. In November 2017, he renounced his Anglican orders to seek reunion with the Catholic Church. In May 2020, Father Scott was ordained a transitional deacon through the ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter, and on October 21st, 2020, ordained a Catholic priest. He currently serves as parochial administrator for St. John Vianney Church in Clareburn, Texas. I hope I said that right. Father Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here, and hello. Hello, and thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you again for braving all these, those technical troubles. Gosh, we're finally here, and I'm, I'm so excited to, uh, to speak to you and to get to know you. I want to tell listeners, I first encountered your story in uh, the Coming Home uh, Network International's uh, uh, newsletter or journal recently for November, I think. I read that thing every month when it comes out. I love reading it. And I began to read your story in there. And for listeners, I'll link to this story in the show notes. They can read this too. I began reading it, not realizing the length of your story. Uh, this happened to me reading Anna Karenina too, the, you know, some of those great Russian literatures. I, I read that on my, on my Kobo, on my e-reader and uh, my Kindle, and I didn't realize how, how thick that would have been if I had printed it off or read the hardback until I was maybe halfway through and thought, wow, how many pages is this? Oh, 10,000 pages. Okay. <laughs> Similarly, in quality and length, Father, I began reading your conversion story in the Coming Home Network's uh, newsletter, and I got into it, and I'm like, wow, this is a really fascinating story. This is really interesting. A lot of twists and turns, and I... I kind of scrolled down a little bit to see how much longer I had to read. And I thought, oh gosh, like my finger got a little tired as I kept going <laughs> and nearing the end. It's a very long story uh, yeah. full, full of all kinds of interesting twists and turns. Uh, just really great. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say glimpse. That's not that's something too short, but, but a great picture of how God can work in somebody's life in some really incredible ways. So, read that story, I finished it, I got to the end, and I immediately looked you up and sent you an email to ask you to come on this show, because I, I wanted to bring your story to a wider audience. So it's going to be a great one. Thank you for being here, and uh, and let's unpack this. Can we begin at the beginning? Uh, I, I want to know, um, well, I, I know, <laughs> I read your story, it's fantastic. Let's let listeners know where your faith life began for you, like in early childhood, where you weren't Catholic to begin with, you weren't Catholic until quite recently. So when did the story, how did the story begin for you? Yeah, for me, it began very early, quite honestly. I was I was six years old, and I will never forget it. And you don't remember much back, you know, the, the zero to about six or seven, and quite honestly, as you get older, it gets anyway, but uh, you don't remember a lot, you know. But I remember sitting, I was standing in the pew at the opening, I was an Episcopalian, my parents were, were cradled. I was a cradle of Episcopalian. My parents uh, came into the Episcopal Church in the mid-50s. And strangely enough, just as a side, they almost went to the Catholic Church. They, they, it, was, it was a toss-up for them. And, um, and so, you know, how, how closely I almost came to being a, a cradle Catholic. But anyway, uh, I was sta standing, in the, you know, sit, uh, standing up and, uh, for the entrance. And, of course, the Episcopal Church has, you know, litur you know, liturgy, much like Catholic. And so you have the entrance with the cross and the acolytes and, uh, and the pastor and everything else. And I looked at Dad, and I was a very, very shy kid. And I looked at Dad, and I said, I, I want to be, be up there with them. And he kind of looked at me, you know, odd, you know, it said, you know, it's church, be quiet. And, and I kept on pastoring and said, I've got to be there. 
And after the service, I kept on pestering. And the service is afterwards. And this took about a month of me just pestering my dad at six years old. And so I finally got the idea. So well, I'm going to take you to, to in, the, in the Episcopal Church. You called your pastor's priest. So please know, um, you know, if I if I make that uh, that quote error, you know, I, I'm not uh, making a theological statement here. But anyway, uh, he took me to our pastor and his uh, just thinking that would quell that because our pastor was was an older man. Turned uh, he was a very nice guy. Don't don't get me wrong, but he could be a little rough at times, you know, a little gruff. And he figured I'd, you know, just say no. And well, sure enough, he took me and says, you know, Scott wants to be an acolyte. And he said, well, I'm sorry, you're six. You, you can't, you know, come back when you're 12 and we'll talk about it. And I said, no, I really need to be up at the altar. And it, and it kind of took him back. And, and he said, well, but you're still, you're six. Can you even stay still? I remember that clearly. Can you stay still up there? I said, oh, yeah. And so what he did is he put me in a cassock and a, and a kata and said, if you can stay still up in the choir, we'll talk about you coming into the sanctuary. And so that's what he did. I did for that year. I processed, it wasn't a year, but anyway, I processed with, the, the, with everybody, but I sat in the choir, right? It was a, it was a traditional church. The choir was, was, you know, you had the nave, then you have the choir, then you have the sanctuary. I sat in the pew just right next to the, to the altar rail, right next to the sanctuary, and I stayed still. And um, quite honestly, that was the last time for years that I would sit in a pew on any regular basis, that is. I, I was there every Sunday. And, uh, and eventually, and this is where, long story short, because I know, we, you know, you only have so much time here. Um, long story short, um, I, I went from there to being an acolyte, and I would acolyte every single Sunday. And it was about age 10, still before when I was supposed to actually be vested as an acolyte, uh, our, our pastor looked at me and my parents were, were back. I was, I was getting divested obviously and, and ready to go home. He put his hand on my head and he said, this boy will be a priest someday. And uh, that's pretty much where all of the, the call to ministry began. And, uh, and so that was kind of the start of it. <laughs> that's a fantastic picture. For the listeners, uh, you up there trying to stay still. I mean, age <laughs> six. Uh, remarkably, before you even were supposed to be an acolyte, you had this. You had this long career as an acolyte. So it it sounds like uh, you had that calling, obviously, from a very young age, and that your parents were really steeped in and devoutly uh, Episcopalian uh, in this case, right? So it was probably a, a pretty uh, pronounced thing in your family. I mean, at least you were there every single Sunday. So your faith obviously was very, very strong. This was something that obviously permeated your household, right? This was a, a, a family faith, right? It, it was. It was interesting. Uh, my parents were, um, and this this gets into a more of <laughs> an indictment, I guess you might say, uh, you know, they were devout Episcopalians. But what that means is you go to church every Sunday. Um, they were very very weary of me becoming overly zealous about religion, so to speak. Uh, they were the types that would say, you know, it, it, you don't, at the dinner table, you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about religion. Uh, you know, to be in, in polite circles, you don't do that. And so there were times in my, or especially in my early childhood to early teens, that we kind of, my parents and I would kind of get into a little bit of a tussle because I would want to be at church more, I'd want to be 
um, at, at, at particular events, youth events especially. And, um, and they were like, you know, no, we don't, you know, we, I don't want to take you there. I don't want to drive you. Got more, you know, we got work to do. And, and, and so, you know, yes and no, as far as, you know, how devout my family was, they were, they were, they were good Christians without, without a doubt. Uh, but they were not, uh, they would not have been everyday massacres. I'll put it that way. <laughs> and then, then you went from there to, to Catholic school, right? For a bit, which I think was, uh, you, you write in the article that I'm, that I read here that you were the only person in there that enjoyed going to mass. <laughs> I was, I was not a very popular kid on that, on that particular uh, uh, part of it is the fact that, yeah, we, uh, Our Lady of Victory here in Fort Worth, it has a school and then right next to it, it had uh, since the convent's been sold and, and uh, it's now now condos. Uh, But anyway, um, it was, it was right next to the school. And so you would, you know, form this long as school children do long procession of line you go into the convent and yeah, I had to go up and I think it was the second or third floor. I don't remember. And there would be a chapel right in the middle of it. And, um, and it was, to me, it was just cool. It was one of those things that you walked in and you felt God's presence. And you know how that is when you walk into uh, really any Catholic church, quite honestly, you walk in and, and, and even non-believers will say something's different about this place. They can feel the presence. And that's kind of where I was and have just loved going up there and watching the mass. So yeah, I, I very much appreciated going to, going to our, our mass at, at Our Lady of Victory. <laughs> and you were kind of on, on the, on the outs with maybe some of the Catholics there that were just there kind of to, didn't appreciate what you found in that as, as the Episcopalian uh, outsider, right? Yeah, it was, it was a little bit different in the fact that, that Episcopalians have always, uh, well, as also with Anglicans, um, we kind of assume, and this gets into what we're going to get into later, we just assume Catholicity. I mean, we assume that, well, we do the same stuff. You know, we have the same, well, we have altar boys, we got the cross, we got, you know, we've got the, 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 the priest and, you know, and everything. And, and so you just kind of assume, and it really does put off Catholics when you do that in the fact that, yeah, I know what's going on here. Absolutely. And they, they, you know, you really, it gets to be a little tough. So, and of course, in middle school, quite honestly, the kids there and just like, get me through this mass, please let me get back to, to something I want to be doing. And here I go, Hey, this is pretty cool guys. What's the problem? That also kind of, yeah, had, had some, some difficulty. <laughs> and again, goes to that strong calling that obviously you felt towards the priesthood and something deeper, uh, liturgically at least. But so you didn't immediately rush off to seminary though. You, you, I don't mm-hmm. know that that calling was strong there, uh, but something, uh, I mean, it took a bit of different career path. So what happened next in your, on your journey? You know, uh, well, high school's what happened and, uh, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> And, you, you know, you, you get into high school, and at the time, our, the priest that, that brought me up as an acolyte retired, and we got a new priest in. And the priest they called uh, was an older gentleman, and he was also gruff, <laughs> so, except I didn't know him from childhood, so it was this new kind of mean old man that, that he, was, he had a little bit of bitterness in him, too. And you would just, I just looked at him and, and just said, I don't want to be that. And, um, and it really put me off. And the other part that was working on me, of course, was the fact that uh, in high school, all, you know, all my friends were talking about which college they were going to and how much money they were going to make. And I mean, this was, you know, the, the late 70s, early 80s. 
and you just kind of got oriented towards that. And anytime I said, "Yeah, I want to be a, I want to be a, a, an Anglican, you know, an Episcopal pastor," um, you know, it, it really look at you like, "What are you talking about?" And peer pressure creeps in, quite honestly. And all of a sudden, you find yourself saying, "Well, I'm going to put that off. I'm going to put that aside for a while." And uh, interestingly enough, I mean. I, you know, thank the Lord, because I really do thank God was protecting me through those years. I never gotten anything really, you know, really bad. Uh, you know, nothing like a lot of people have these these horror stories of things they got into in high school and college. Um, you know, even in college, and I will remember, I was a member of fraternity, and, and it was it was it was not your most scholastic academic fraternity <laughs> that you'll ever want to be in. And uh but but I would always during Lent I would always be giving up something and going to I go to Wednesday night masses I would always add that for 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 Lent and and Episcopal Church had Wednesday night services and so you know we'd be you know in the in the lodge and they oh come on let's go to the bar and I go no I gotta go I gotta go to church and, and of course that would give the look and and so I mean it was always there it just simply um, I chose to put it on the back burner. And, and a lot of that also came to the fact that I couldn't see what, what I could, you know, I couldn't see why I was called to the priesthood. I, I couldn't see why I was called to be a minister. I, I you know, at the time, um, you know, I really couldn't sing. Uh, I never really, I obviously never gave a sermon. I didn't think I could. Um, I wasn't all that talkative as far as that goes. People will always say that I'm kind of quiet, believe it or not. And, and so I was like, I don't have any talents for that. I mean, it's just, and, and you convince yourself very easily that what God's calling you to do, it was well, just crazy talk. Either I'm mishearing or, or, you know, or, or something because it's just not for me. And so I did, I, I went, I went and, and um, enrolled at Texas tech in, in architecture, even though I could not draw. And honestly, I can't, I have told everybody this. I cannot do math to save my life. <laughs> If you put a gun to my head and said, you need to do the Pythagorean theorem, you know, I'm sorry, you have to shoot me now because uh, I, I can't do this. And, um, and so this is the guy that has the phone, uh, the calculator on my phone is almost worn out because, you know, it's a eight times six is too much. So, you know, what is that? And so, oh my goodness, college was brutal. And, and, and please don't, I'm sure out there on the interwebs, you can probably find my transcript. Just, it, it's something you can't unsee. So, it's horrible. And, but I got through, I got through, it took me the better part of 10 years to do a five-year degree because back then they did architecture. wasn't a professional. It was a professional degree. You could get a master's, but the way tech did, it was a five-year and, uh, and yeah, it took me about 10 years to get through. I took, uh, I took statics, uh, engineering class statics, which engineering starts at statics and then goes into, um, um, Oh, lost the word, dynamic and, you know, fluid technology stuff. You know, statics is where everything equals zero. It's supposed to be the easiest engineering possible. Took me six times to pass that class. And the sixth time I, I, I hounded my professor so much, he would run from me. He would I would sit there in the morning and have to sit there early in the morning, wait for him to come to his office. And like, he would round the corner and see me sitting at the floor and just then he would just stop. Like, can I turn around and run? <laughs> Oh, it was awful. It was awful. And, uh, but I did, I've got my degree in architecture. It's over here on the wall. So I can, I can show it off every now and then. <laughs> you finished that then <laughs> by the grace of God in the seat of your pants, maybe. 
Yeah. And uh, I worked for a bit in the field before before what happened. Yeah, I got into the architecture field and um, it wasn't three years in. You know, the Lord doesn't quit. He honestly, it, it continues after you. And I got back to my old church where I'd originally been acolyting over at St. John's Episcopal and, um, and was a lay reader. Again, I could not sit in the pew. It's like, can I, you can't be an acolyte, you're too old. Or why don't you be an great? I uh, started to do that. Um, it, it just started, I had to be at the church and I had no reason to be at the church. So then I got elected on the vestry, which is the parish council of Episcopal church. Um, well, then I became all the Wootens. My whole, my grandfather was a mechanical contractor. My dad was an architect. I was an architect. All the Wootens were junior wardens at the Episcopal at St. John's because we knew building. Junior warden takes care of the physical property. And, uh, and so, you know, the Wootens just knew St. John's inside and out. And so I got to be junior warden. That's when I got a key. And when I got the key, I actually started going up there after work and praying. Just constant. I was just driven every single day. I was there, and um, and so yeah, about three years for the yeah, three years in architecture. I kind of knew um, that this was going to be something I was going to have to deal with. And about that time, our priest, actually the priest that came to me in high, that came in high school, that like I said before, I did, did, couldn't see myself. He retired, and um, and we went to a rector search. And it got down to two people. I was on the vestry, so, I, you know, we were the ones looking for the new, the new uh, minister. We got down to the last two, and one of them was, uh, uh, was for one year when I was an early teen. Uh, and it was actually when I, back when I was still wanting and, and feeling very much called to be a priest at 14. He was my youth director. And I said, why about that? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, and this is making the deal with the Lord, which you should never don't don't do as I do, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I I said, Lord, if 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 it was Father Twyman, Father John Twyman, Father Twyman gets uh, um, gets elected as rector, I'll go see him about this calling. And this was a very contentious. Oh my gosh, very contentious. See, anything in the Episcopal Church from 1960 to present is horribly contentious. It just it may look all peaceful on the outside they are duking it out on the inside. So this was a very contentious race. And so what happened is uh, he got elected. And I said, doggone it, I'm going to have to go see him about this. And so I walked into his office and said, and he knew me from way back and, you know, said, Father Twyman, listen, I've got this calling. I want to know how you can take it out of me because I've got this architecture degree that I fought long and hard for. And uh, maybe I could be a deacon because then I could keep my job and be a deacon in the church. And he kept me in there for about 30 minutes with some questions that were very basic. Now I know exactly what he's looking at. And he said, sorry, this is not a call to the diaconate. And so at that time I went, I didn't tell my parents because I had been through three different architectural firms. Uh, not bad. Actually, the first one I was fired for, for laughing, believe it or not. Um, but anyhow, the, the second one, did very well. Well, then my dad actually needed me in his firm um, because, and I quote, I need you down here. I was in Lubbock at the time. He says, I need you down here because I need somebody I don't have to pay all the time. <laughs> and so, yeah, I said, sure. With one kid, I went down and, and, and volunteered for that. Um, so anyway, what happened is that um, I, without telling my, my parents, because my dad, you know, obviously relied on me. I was 
you know, gainfully employed with his firm. And so I said, okay, uh, set me up with the Commission on Ministry for the Episcopal Diocese of Fort Worth. And I went in and I told them and they greeted it. And I said, guys, you know, I really don't know what I'm doing, you know, as far as I know why I'm here, but I really, if you find anything that you can't, you, that you find questionable about me and my call, throw me out because I need to get back to architecture. And um, I went through there without any problem and went to, went to Neshota House. So and you began there. <laughs> These are great stories, by the way. <laughs> you began there, and you you write about this being a very Anglo-Catholic uh, in nature. When you began there, and you talk about for the first time understanding some of the ideas of the Catholic Church and putting some pieces together, but then being kind of confused. And it's it's interesting to me. You, you always had this kind of Anglo-Catholic leaning, even from your very the very kind of roots of of your faith. Sound like they're very Anglo-Catholic, looking towards the Catholic Church as, say, an Episcopalian or an Anglican. What did you find when you began looking into Catholic theology and the Anglican theology and Episcopal theology and, and how these kind of connected and, and related? And, I mean, a question you ask in this in your journey as you're writing this is, you know, why, why weren't you in communion with Rome if you guys were so Anglo-Catholic? You know, where did those questions begin to boil up for you as you begin to study that stuff uh, in, in seminary. You know, as you get uh, in the show to house taught patristic, you know, the fathers of the church, um, you know, Ignatius, Augustine, uh, and get into Aquinas as you come forward. I mean, you know, they, 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 they taught Catholic theology. And as you, as you come into seminary, at least for me, uh, well, number one, I was an architect. So it, 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 you know, it was kind of a, a, a very hard shift for me. Uh, I go from drawing, essentially, um, which I was in CAD at the time very early. And so, you know, I went from that to, to having to do papers and, and that. And so, you know, as you come into seminary, it, it is that, you know, Jesus saves and that's what the Bible says. And so you come into seminary expecting just to learn more about the Bible. And, and, and obviously you do. Uh, you know, again, hindsight is twenty twenty. I understand what I'm saying is, it gets kind of interesting, but the, you expect just to learn Scripture. And what you learn is not only Scripture, but everything behind, uh, you know, every, all, the, all the theological, form, you know, the, 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 all the theology that is in Scripture gets pulled out. And then you have to start making sense of that as far as, okay, you know, when Jesus tells, you know, tells Peter, Peter who do you say that I am? You know, I mean, you can just read that as, as you know, anybody would just simply read it like any kind of story or novel and say, okay, interesting story. But as obviously when you get into the theology behind it, you start to say, well, wait a minute, there's a lot more to this. Uh, and, and not only that is how can you just leave it on, um, read it on a, um, on a cursory basis? It, it, you, know, you know, God's word just grabs you and takes you in and, and makes you say, what is more about there's so much more about this what can i find about this and and so what happened is as we started to um to 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 learn more about scripture as i started to learn theology because again i did not come from a theological background as far as educational education wise um it all just made sense to me as far as um well of course the, the catholic church is the universal church and Honestly, we saw the Catholic Church more as 
the true church, and we were kind of a, a, a happenstance to the side. I mean, we understood, we went through the Reformation, learning about Reformation and all. We understood why that is uh, and, and what happened there, and we were just kind of a product of the excesses of Rome, uh, to use the, to coin a, a Reformation word. And, um, and so we understood why we were on the side and why, we had, why the schism happened there. Um, but we were always taught that, well, that's all fine and dandy. Reformation happened, and that's why we were in schism with Rome. However, Catholic theology is really where you're going to find the answers and the logic. And so that was Neshota House when I went through it. Uh, or at least that's what I got from it. I can't speak for everybody, obviously, that's been through it. I've got... Um, I think half of my class are now Catholic priests um, that went through that Episcopal seminary, <laughs> but the other half are still are still in the Episcopal Church. So obviously they, you know, they may not seen or heard the same thing that I did. Yeah, does that answer your question in any kind of a? <laughs> yeah, it does. And I want to dig a bit more deeply into this uh, after we get through your story. Maybe go back a little bit and dig more into this because this is, and I've had I've had Father lots of Anglican Episcopalian converts uh, on this show. Um, fall into a rabbit hole, as it were. Uh, listeners seem to love it, and lots of listeners write in who are who are Anglicans, Episcopalians, uh, members of the clergy who are discerning uh, becoming Catholic. In many cases, it's very rewarding to, to be able to bring stories like yours to the to the fore. Uh, and, and one thing that I, I hear a lot of is this idea of uh, the branch theory, this idea that the Anglican Church is a branch of the Catholic Church. So yeah. I want to dig more into that in a little bit. I want to keep going for now, but put that aside for a second, because that, in a sense, is how you how you live as an Anglican or Episcopalian uh, in this Anglo-Catholic kind of framework, I think, is, is you have this idea that you are some kind of a branch right, of the Catholic Church. So let's put that to decide for now because you remained an Episcopal uh, Episcopalian. You finished seminary and you began your career uh, as as a priest, right? What Where did mm-hmm. that take you next once you graduated? Where did you go from there? When I graduated, actually it was before I graduated, I, I went to um, uh, Trinity Wauwatosa and they, uh, they needed, um, I went there to work as a seminarian, which means, you know, Basically, you're a you're a glorified lay reader. Um, but uh, I got there, and it wasn't three months after or so. Uh, both the clergy got called to other churches, and so I was kind of about the only thing that looked like a, a clergyman left. And they turned to me and they said, "You need to take the youth group." And I said, "I don't know anything about kids. You got to be kidding me." Well, I let them talk me into it. Number one, because that was one of the few paying jobs that, that was out there for seminarians. So I began to be their youth director, and I found that I liked it, and I had some. Uh, aptitude for it. And so after I left seminary, I went to All Saints Fort Worth, All Saints Episcopal Fort Worth, and I was there, uh, our youth guide, and also chaplain for the upper school at All Saints Episcopal School. So that was my first uh, kind of, um, you know, job, so to speak, out of out of seminary was, was, in, was in youth work. Was it, was it long before you began to see some some cracks kind of form in the Episcopal Church. I mean, this is a time, uh, it was too in the Catholic Church, I mean, following Vatican II for a while there, there's very for, poor formation, there's not a lot of understanding of, of what's going on in the Church and who should be priests and if there's a clerical, if there's a need for more converts. Or, I mean, there's a lot of confusion happening in the Catholic Church. Likewise in the Episcopal Church, but I think the the cracks were were larger and and sometimes were were uh, 
threatening the unity of the Episcopal Church in many cases, right? I mean, the Catholic Church held together and holds together under the Pope and, and the bishops, but a lot of shifting in this period of time in the Episcopal and the Anglican churches, right? Where, where, when did you begin to see some of these cracks? And, and I mean, how, how did you feel about that as, as a new uh, priest kind of starting your career in the, in the early stages of your career? What, what did you encounter? You know, it, it was my second year, I want to say, in seminary. It might be my third year. Um, a new presiding bishop got elected in the Episcopal Church, and the Shota House had a satellite dish. And so we got um, we got the opportunity to have the live feed of his consecration as bishop, uh, or not consecration, uh, anyway, his seating as the presiding bishop. He was already a bishop. Um, anyway, um, so we were all down the basement of the refectory up in, in Shota House, and we had invited uh, our neighboring seminary to come over and— um, and watch it with us. And, and honestly, we were horrible hosts because of the fact that the service was, was just an unbelievable, uh, I mean, everything from the vestments to the liturgics to the, 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 the liter- I mean, the, the, the words they used even in the liturgy. You see, in the Episcopal Church, you pretty much can make it up as you go, especially when you're a bishop. It doesn't have to be what's in the altar book. You can you can move it, make it. Uh, if you want to wear yellow or, or or red, you know. In fact, uh, they were. I think it was yellow and dark blue that they were. That they were. They look like bumblebees, quite honestly. And and one of us made the comment because the the, the deacon came out. The deacon of the mass came out and. And, and she, which already set us apart because, you know, the church is just split. The Episcopal Church is dead set, you know, part of dead set against women's ordination, uh, part that, that very much accepted. And we just cracked up and said, oh, my gosh, she looks like a bumblebee dancing around out there. And, oh, I mean, it was, it was almost a fight that broke out. And, you know, we got tapped on the shoulder and felt horrible because of the fact that, you're right, because we got used to us being, you know, that was kind of our home. We can say what we want. Didn't think about the fact that we've got, people, you know, guests in already. And uh, and that really was the first inkling in my mind that, oh, my goodness, we are absolutely as divided as possible because here we are just being who we are. And, um, and it was highly offensive to this other group over here. And we apologized and, and sat down and said, sorry, sorry, you know, uh, no more comments will come from our mouth. And we didn't. We, you know, we were we were perfect gentlemen past that point. But that really, when you say when was the first time you remember you know, hearing this, that was it. That was when I said, we are a divided church. And um, and also knowing that the new presiding bishop coming in was also very liberal. Uh, we knew that we knew then that we had quite the hill to climb. And uh, that's really when you start to look for um, a way out, you know, a, a way to be who you think you're called to be, who you believe you're called to be, um, but not at least in this church structure. So you, you all of a sudden, and of course, Rome was always, I mean, you know, back from, you know, Archbishop Ramsey, who went over to um, uh, Pope Paul you know, the sixth and then, spoke with him about, you know, reunion with, with Rome. And, uh, you know, this had been going on for quite a while that, that, that Anglicans had been making trips to Rome and I say Anglicans, bishops and archbishops, um, but making trips to Rome saying, you know, please help us out in some way. 
And uh, and so that's when I first knew that this is a this is a horrible split church. <laughs> that's extremely early on in in your journey in, uh, as an Anglican uh, Episcopalian priest. I mean, still in seminary, I find it fascinating. A couple of things you said there too, especially the idea that okay, here's here's the bishop that's coming in. This is the person that uh, would have authority over us, and we look to uh, for for the structure and for guidance and for all these different things. Uh, and they're at odds with this group of seminarians. And you also mentioned, too, the idea of a split around women being ordained to the priesthood. And, I mean, subsequently later on uh, as bishops as well. Um, same thing up here in Canada. I mean, these are issues that, that were dealt with here in, in Canada as well. And there's been various solutions to that amongst Anglicans up here joining different break-off Anglican uh, communions and, and whatnot. But how do you, within this church, how do you wrestle with the fact that you're joining this church. You then went on to serve for a number of years, you know, in those early years, at odds with some of these, the, the major things that that, you're, that the Episcopal Church is teaching and is, is practicing. I just wonder how you live kind of that dichotomy, that, that when yeah. part of the church is so different than, than your part of the church, but you're supposed to be part of the same church, right? You, you, you believe that Catholicism can save them, meaning um, we as Anglo-Catholics, as we called ourselves, um, knew that we had the, the, the correct and the true theology. It was the theology, you know, held by, you know, by the Roman Catholic Church for the most part. Uh, we figured that was the correct theology, and therefore we thought that that in itself would save them, meaning we would present them with this with this with these theological theses, you know, with the, with the idea that this, you know, perfect theology and just say, you can't logically deny this. Therefore you'll see our way and you'll come our way that then. And, and it's very much, the Episcopal church is very much a political uh, atmosphere. It, it's just like a political, uh, like what we're going through right now, uh, you know, politics with, with political parties fighting for the votes that you, you know, that you need. And um, and that's what we were doing and thinking that, you know, if we fight hard enough uh, that we can sway the Episcopal Church with the whole time. Interestingly enough, thinking that, well, if we could sway the Episcopal Church enough, then we can stop all this heresy of ordinations of women and and others that, that, that were not correct. Then we could again approach Rome, just as Archbishop Ramsey did when when he came to Rome, you know. Because it almost in the mid, you know, early mid '60s, it almost became a reality, where the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Communion, uh, had some form of reunion. Now, who knows what that would have looked like, quite honestly. Uh, but in our mind, it was just a matter of developing a church that was Catholic enough to where we could then present ourselves to Rome, and they would accept us. And that's really where you get into the things of being on this side of the Tiber that I am now. You start to you you can fully understand that's never ever going to happen. But that was our hope is that you know we would we would show ourselves to be the church that could be accepted and taken back home. And it's almost if like you're you're trying to save save the Anglican Church right by making it by by making it as Catholic as possible and then presenting it back to the Catholic Church as they hear look we look kind of like you guys but it seems like and it sounds like and of course as your story unfolds and as as history and time unfolds 
it's obvious that this, as you just said, isn't, isn't possible, isn't going to happen. But you write about seeing a number of, of people, of, of ordained Episcopal priests, converting to Catholicism. Um, the, the pastoral provision kind of came out. Can you unpack that a little bit and what you began to see? Because you, you write here, and we can circle back to this idea of the branch theory. Um, you, you write here this idea that you, you saw this happening and thought, well, why are, you, why are you leaving? We have valid orders. We're this third branch of the Catholic Church. Why, why are you guys going? Let's, this is the attitude of let's just stay here and fix this. You know, we're okay where we are here. What, what, were you, what were you thinking when this was going on? I mean, unpack that a bit more for us. Maybe explain to the listeners what the provisional, uh, uh, pastoral provision was at this yeah. time, too, so they, so they are caught up to speed. Well, in, in 1982, I believe, and help me with the dates, because, I, you know, I've, I've listened a little bit to your podcast now since, you know, you, you asked me on. I thought it, I, when I subscribe, and uh, you have all these authors and very intelligent people. I, I'm just a, a, a parish priest in a small town, so know that you can fact check my dates. But it's 1982 comes, I think, is what it is. Uh, the, the John Paul II, uh, Saint John Paul II. Um, put forth the pastoral provision, which allows for married clergy in the Anglican Church, and I do believe uh, other other denominations, to approach the Catholic Church and ask um, ask to go through the process for holy orders uh, while being married. And so the pastoral provision was always was there, and at least in my tenure, was always there. Uh, and so when I saw people go through it, what was talked about a lot is that everybody has that point where their conscience can't take it anymore because of the fact that, that as you're in the Episcopal church, um, you have so many things going on with women's ordination and then came ordination and acceptance of the gay lifestyle. Um, you, you then have um, lay presiding of the Eucharist. Then you, you know, you have all these things kind of piling on, and it was a matter of where your conscience was on this. What can you, what can you accept? I mean, imagine, um, you know, I don't know if I want to liken it to, I don't want to think, I don't think I want to use that, that like what I was just thinking of, but I mean, it, it is a thing that as you go through life and you're in questionable situations that you will continue to step forward. And for all of us, there is that point where I can say, I can't go any further. And so I always, when people left, a lot, of, a lot of Episcopal priests would get very angry when people would leave for the Roman Catholic Church. They would see it as, uh, as a traitor. I mean, that's just, just they, I've been called traitor a number of times. Um, you, you see them, well, I never had that problem. I knew that they just reached the level where either God called them or um, they, they simply, you know, could not bear it anymore because I could see the, the, the issues going on in the Episcopal Church. And, and you, you really, it also depends on which church you're in because I got the, I got, I had the opportunity to go through several churches. And for instance, my church in Wichita Falls, I was, it was a, you know, nice little church in a nice little town. And the parishioners were great. And quite honestly, I, I introduced the Catholic lectionary. I had Catholic Bibles, and I taught RCIA, and they pretty much knew it. And for the most part, I had a couple people ask me questions, and I told them we were all very happy. And so for me, it wasn't as hard to coexist with the greater church. And, you know, 
it didn't really get that to that point until I started seeing the diocese uh, falter. And then I started also having questions about intention and communion, uh, what those two words mean. And that's really what broke it for me as far as my conscience. But that's, it, it wasn't, uh, for me at least, it wasn't anger seeing people um, go into the, into the Catholic priesthood. It was, God bless you. And, and may, you know, Godspeed to you. So yeah, and you 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 had a nice little Catholic church. It sounds like, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> there with your you know, which sounds yeah yeah I, I see how you could exist there. You then at at one point, two thousand and three, went to uh, general convention of the Episcopal yeah. Church, and I've I had a number of converts who've mentioned very similar instances. Uh, I think of Paul McCusker, who was the uh, writer of Ventures and Odyssey, very popular evangelical. Um, radio drama, who was a uh, Episcopalian who experienced a bit of, uh, from the sidelines, one of these conventions, and just saw people voting on theology and doctrine and was kind of taken aback. I, I think Dr. James Merrick was on this show. He was a former uh, Anglican priest, uh, now works for Scott Hahn uh, down in Steubenville at Emmaus Road Academic Publishing, and he was an Episcopal priest who, again, saw this kind of thing unfold and was just kind of shocked by 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 what happens here at some of these conventions. So uh, you mentioned before the idea of these political parties uh, and the sense that the Episcopal Church is very political in that sense. And it sounds like if in your description so far, I mean, talking about uh, a, a bishop coming in who's very liberal and, and kind of does his own his own thing for how the liturgy works in that, in that ceremony and these kinds of things and being at odds with some of these different camps. What did you experience uh, in your experience of... of the actual, the workings or behind the scenes, uh, what takes place at the Episcopal Church. You know, and that's really when I got my first dose of what was going on behind the scenes, because I went quickly from All Saints into three missions out west of town. I, I was west of Fort Worth for a very long time, and so I was kind of insulated, so to speak, from all the inner workings. But 2003 was the first time I kind of saw the making of the sausage, so to speak, as they say. And... Um, and the thing, you know, I went up to, to convention. Um, it was sleeping on the floor, quite honestly, because I couldn't afford a, a, a hotel room up there. And um, and I would go from, of course, you had one side of the convention is is the laity and the priests, and the other side is the is the house of bishops. And and so I would go back and forth and, and see the debate. And you you would think being an Episcopalian, I would think that what they would be debating was theology, you know, scripture, theology, uh, proving the fact that at that time it was, it was, um, can, can we, um, can we consecrate a gay man bishop? And that was, that was the whole conversation. And you would think they would say, you know, presenting papers and, and, and here's in scripture where we can, where we can prove this. And, and, and what we were witness to, was just, well, this is right. This is the right thing to do. We can't be seen in society as this backward church that, that, that believes that homosexuality is a sin. We, we just can't do that. And it was one of those instances in my life that I really, and that's what I wrote in the, in the article I wrote for the Coming Home Network, is when, when I walked out with, well, it was with Father Russ Arnett, who was a Catholic priest up in the Diocese of Milwaukee, Archdiocese of Milwaukee, I'm sorry. And, um, and I looked at him and I said, Russ, I can't, I don't, I want to take off my collar. 
I don't want anybody in the city to know I'm a priest in the Episcopal Church. And it really was where we hit the low. And I honestly thought then and there, you know, how, how can I get out of this? And so it really hits you the fact that, that at least for the Episcopal Church, it is run not so much by theology nor the Word of God, but of what we feel is right. And that's a real problem when you start uh, pronouncing yourself, you know, as God or as somebody that that knows better than God. Um, I think that's a very dangerous place to be, obviously. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's not, as you said, and I've experienced this too uh, through clergy friends up here in Canada who are Anglican clergy. And again, number of, of guests in the show have spoken to this as well, this this voting on issues, this this debate on things that are really important. And conclusions being made that are counter to thousands of years of, of Christian history, of, of Catholic history, decisions being made on, on feelings and on, well, the Bible, you describe in the article, somebody mentions to you, the Bible is just an old, dusty collection of stories or something. I mean, yeah. this, this is not uncommon to, to be the basis of decisions being made in the Anglican and Episcopalian Church, right? These, these ideas that, I guess, being an Anglo-Catholic, having that kind of mentality, I mean, teaching RCIA, looking at, at the Catholic catechism for your theology, becomes kind of difficult to be in that group when at the upper echelons of things, at the higher order of things, decisions are being made that aren't based on those, the tradition of theology and, and scripture, right? Well, after after that convention, I, I went back and, and, and wrote probably the first, I guess, I guess it wasn't the first time I gotten, gotten a little, um, I won't say sideways with my bishop, but definitely, you know, bishops, yes, sir. Yes, bishop. What, what can I do for you? You know, and uh, this was, I wrote a letter saying, bishop, I, I can't stay in this church if we stay with the Episcopal church. It, it just, I can't do this. Is, this is my conscience line. I, I cannot be in a church that simply does it because we feel like doing it. And, and I know that sounds like a cliche or some kind of a, a bumper sticker line. Honestly, that is what they were doing. And I said, I can't be in this church. Well, that's when the whole, you know, idea it took a couple of years, but that is, in fact, it took five years. Uh, but when the ACNA, the American Church of North America came on, it's, it's when uh, we started to actually and actively separating ourselves from the Episcopal Church. Uh, these things come about, and of course, I say slowly, five years in, you know, goodness knows in Catholic Church time, that's, that's, that's nothing, uh, you know, but, but it took five years to get that organized, and, and that's when we have formally separated from the Episcopal Church. So here's your chance to start, uh, as you say in the article, kind of a new church, a new Catholic church. It, uh, <laughs> you, you laugh and I laugh because a new Catholic church sounds kind of funny, and uh, I know a few. I know a few uh, Anglican priests, Episcopal priests, who have started new Anglican churches. Right? It's kind of a bit funny to think of that. To think of planting a church or starting a denomination or something that's that's supposed to be ancient, but it's it's new. <laughs> yeah. How did it? How did it go? Uh, this with the uh, with the Anglican Church in North America. This kind of attempt to break away from what was becoming maybe more of a liberal church, not based on the Bible or tradition anymore. So here's a new a new way forward. Um, not a success for you, because now you're a Catholic priest, Father. Uh-huh. <laughs> How did it go in the interim? You know, the very first was, was just euphoria. 
it, we were very happy to be free of the Episcopal Church. Uh, you know, we had all, you know, had to, we'd all left, you know, pension, all that sort of stuff was just left behind. Um, you know, so we'd all given up a lot to leave the Episcopal Church, and they made sure that we paid for it with everything they could find. And they instantly their lawsuit started, and our diocese was buffeted by just lawyer upon lawyer. Uh, and in hindsight, I probably would have suggested we do things differently than we did, because we fought the lawsuits. Honestly, we should have just handed them our church keys and said, oh, by the way, the air conditioner's running. You might want to do something about that, and just walked out. I think that would have been a, a much better way. But anyway, that's that's a whole different avenue. We didn't. But at first, it was very, very good because, again, remember, at least in my little, you know, little bitty mind, thinking, let's build this Catholic Church and present it to Rome. It was always how I was going to get to the Roman Catholic Church, of course, without submitting and and going in the way everybody else does. And quite honestly, the way the only way you can. Um, It was always this. Now we can make this church that's, that's, that's nice, neat, it's Catholic, and we can then go to the Roman Catholic Church. And so we were all very happy about that. And um, we would come together, and of course, you would still have, uh, believe it or not, in the ACNA, there were still women clergy, there were still women priests, and so that was a problem. They did make a, 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 a canon law against women in the, uh, as bishops, and so you know, we didn't have to worry about that as much. Um, because in our minds, you know, when you're, you're still in the Episcopal Church, even the Anglican Church, you're thinking about apostolic, uh, you know, apostolic session. And, and though, yes, I know, you know, it's not present, but you got to get my mind back then. Uh, you know, if you have a woman bishop, then, then she's not a bishop, and therefore that would kill, you know, the, the secession. Therefore, that's what we were concerned about. So, yeah, we've got some women priests up there. We'll take care of that you know, when the time comes, because there was always going to be finally, finally, a committee that met and did a theological study on biblical proof for women in the priesthood. And that was promised right on the outgo. And I was going to thank the Lord, finally, because I knew you can't find it in scripture. You just can't. Therefore, have at it, ma'am, please do. And come tell me, you know, how you can prove this in, in scripture. So we went on, and I guess it was two years later, in 2010, um, when Pope Benedict brought out uh, um, the uh, Constitution for the Ordinariate. And I had, we had in Dice of Fort Worth, and I can't, we've lost count. Um, it was about 10 that went over at that time, just instantly. And these were all the these were the best priests we had, quite honestly, in the Episcopal Diocese of Fort Worth. Uh, people I looked up to, people I uh, you know, mentors, you know, just took the heart out of us. And I looked and I said, "Where are you going? You know, we're just now getting this ACNA thing going. And it's going to be this great thing, and we're going to. And now you're quitting, and why?" And they looked at me and just said, "No, it's not what you think it is." And you see, as me in Wichita Falls was very insulated. I didn't know. And they just assumed that I had been told or brought up to date. I didn't know. ACNA was already a failure at that time. And already a failure. And so, of course, when they left, then I they left room. They needed, you know, people to be in the uh, standing committee and the like. Because, you know, once once they were all gone, then I 
kind of got myself into that. And so I start, that's when I started learning the truth about the ACNA and, and where it was going. And it was not going to the Catholic Church. In fact, it was doing the opposite. Uh, it was it was going to be a, a very hard-lined Calvinist, Protestant type of organization. So how did you... Uh... I imagine that's quite the emotional roller coaster. I mean, you've kind of all along in your journey been Anglo-Catholic leaning. You find yourself on the kind of on the on the outs, on the edges of of the Episcopal Church. You find this looks like a kind of a way forward, and that that kind of becomes a roadblock. Kind of kind of, kind of just, just stops there, doesn't go any further, and, and not what you imagined it being. Uh, what do you do? Do you join your your colleagues, your friends? Uh, and now, you know, as you as you tell the story, there are more and more friends who are becoming Catholic, entering into full communion. Where where did you go at that point? I mean, when it began, when it became obvious that the the uh, the ACNA was kind of lost, and and things were becoming this kind of uphill uphill battle for you. You know, I remember having a phone call with a friend that was uh, in another diocese that was very much in favor of the more Protestant leaning ACNA. And I was almost in tears and I think you could tell it. And I was just saying, you guys have got to stop taking us in this direction. And you're taking the heart out of our diocese. You're taking my friends away to the, you know, the Catholic church. You got to stop. I mean, there's not gonna be anything left over here. And, um, and I forgot what his exact response was, but it was more or less, you don't understand. That's not, this is not where the ACNA, ACNA is. And I knew at that point, you're right, that, that, okay, what I thought the ACNA was, is not. And by the way, you know, God bless the ACNA for, for the, you know, it, it is just a Protestant organization. And I think that, I don't think they would have a problem with saying that, you know, and, and in fact, they've, you know, it, it's, yeah. And so when I finally realized that, then it was, okay, this is when I need to go to the Catholic Church. And this was uh, 2012. Yeah. So when you do that as a pastor, at least, you know, if you're a, if you're a layperson sitting in the pew of the Episcopal Church and you get annoyed with it, you get up, you walk out the back door and you walk into the Catholic Church and you say, here I am. And everything's great. When it's your paycheck, you go, okay, what can I do now? And this is where I came up with every, and I will not go through them because a lot of them are just flat embarrassing, every cockamamie type of idea on how to be an Anglican priest, but yet somehow go into the Catholic Church. And, and my prayer was, Lord, from early on, it was, Lord, show me the door. You know, you, you, you're, I, I believe you're calling me to the Catholic Church. I can't stay where I am. Show me the door. Show me, how do, how do I do this? And, um, you know, it was then about 2015, three years, and, um, and it was a tense three years. Not for my church in Wichita Falls, certainly not, uh, but it was a tense time in the diocese just because our bishop had gotten tired of, of the heart of his diocese leaving. And, and I could see, you know, somewhat, I guess, uh, it, you know, on his side, but it, it, was, it was getting very tense you had to be, if you mentioned Catholicism or, or entering the Catholic Church, that had to be totally on the hush-hush. I mean, people would look, you know, look around, make sure who's listening, and it was tense. And um, about that time, and it's a long story in itself that I won't go into, I got called to another church. I got elected. Of course, in the Episcopal Church, Anglican Church, you run for positions, and the vestry elects you. 
And this was a church that was having a hard time finding a pastor because they had a longtime pastor before uh, 30 years. And they were very much separated and divided on how, and they elected me unanimously. And I thought at the time, well, that's a sign that God wants me to stay in the Anglican church. Because I kind of saw, at that point in time, I told people I was kind of the bridge between the Anglican church and Catholicism. People just walk right over me. I would teach them Catholicism, and they would walk over to the Catholic church. Um, I gave quite a few people to Sacred Heart and and, and uh, that Wichita Falls Catholic Church and said, God bless you. You know, please go and pray for me that God will allow me to cross this bridge somehow. Um, but I thought then that I said, well, this is where God's going to have me. I, for whatever reason, I can't see why, but he's called me to this new church. It's unanimous. A lot of things happen. And so I went to the new church and looking back on it now, I see that it was it was God's way. I was very comfortable in Wichita Falls. I had a very, quote, Catholic church. Uh, it wasn't. It was Anglican, by the way. But, you know, um, I don't know if I would have ever left. That's a good question. I, I sometimes wonder that if I would be strong enough to give to give good shepherd up in that manner that I gave Peter and Paul up, uh, the church, not Peter and Paul. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, you know, I, I wonder about that. And I think this was God's way of saying, Let's put him in a less comfortable place uh, because he's praying for a door and I'm going to give it to him. I don't know where we are in the story now, but you can, you can take it from there, whatever, whatever else I need. <laughs> so you, you went to this new church uh, and God made you uncomfortable there. That's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I hear this in a lot of cases. I mean, I, I'm thinking of, of priests that I know and I'm, are in my orbit and I seem to have attracted lots of Anglican and Episcopal priests listening to the show which I love, uh, it's fantastic and some describe themselves as would say I'm a Catholic priest uh, because they're in the tradition of of the, the, the Catholic Church and see themselves even at, though they're ordained in the Anglican Church they see themselves as a, a Catholic country uh, a pastor, yep. right? I mean yep. it's, it's this very real idea of well, I'm I'm not technically in communion with the Catholic Church, but we are part of the Catholic Church. I teach <laughs> RCIA. I, you know, the Catechism forms my my faith. Yeah. Um, there is a kind of 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 mental kind of gymnastics that you're doing there, right? I mean, I think it was Andrew Pettiprin who I was speaking with, who was a former uh, Anglican priest who now works for Bishop Barron at Word on Fire Ministries. Uh, he he stepped down from from being uh, a priest didn't choose to be reordained as a Catholic priest uh, yet, he tells me. But he talks about how he really played this game of, of knowing which bishop seemed to have apostolic authority and it would go to that bishop for certain things. Like you, you, you mentioned briefly about, okay, if you ordain a woman as a bishop, then you know right away that you've, you've lost that succession because the Catholic Church is clear in what they teach about who can be a, a, a bishop very clear. Yeah. He talks about the gymnastics of, of, you know, even who you go to for different things to, to talk to or to receive confession from or to receive the Eucharist from. You're playing this kind of game around who you see based on, on how you think they're, they're more or less Catholic and it becomes very confusing. And as you say, I mean, you're comfortable in this parish that for all intents and purposes is kind of a Catholic parish and you see yourself as kind of a Catholic priest in a sense there, right? But suddenly you're moved to a different parish and experience something quite different, I think, and eventually you you leave the the priesthood altogether. So how did how did that unfold for you? I mean, that as you mentioned, I mean, when it's tied to your income, that's a much bigger deal than just being a guy in the pew, right? As hard as that yeah. can be. 
Yeah, and, and it's you know the way the way it came about is this idea. First of all, you're doing these mental gymnastics, just staying in the ministry that you're in, and essentially you focus on the job at hand. Meaning, you, you do at, at every minister of every denomination uh, that is a godly minister, you know, helps people to Christ, go see the sick, the poor, the needy. You know, you do your job, so to speak, and you don't try not to pay attention to everything that's whirling around you, you know, showing you that it's not. And number one, the, the parish, you know, had some, has some difficulties. And I came in after following a 30-year, you know, guy that, that had been there for a long time, and the staff was, was having some issues, and I had to take care of some issues. And I did, and it was a very bad thing for about 10 to 20% of the congregation. And so instantly, within three months, I was embattled. I mean, I was I was absolutely just embattled. And and, um, and what happened also in that time was that in the diocese, I was on the standing committee, and I was also I've been on the commission of ministry, which which uh, people who seeking the the ministry in the Episcopal and the Anglican Church at that time, you go through the the commission on ministry, and that's who discerns whether you're being called or not, and. Up came through a guy that um, that just said, "I, you know, I don't believe in the sacraments." And I said, "Well, nice seeing you. <laughs> you know, that's it's. You might want to go find the the Church of Christ or something like that." And um, but but yet I was told that no, you can vote for him because once he's ordained, the sacraments will just come. Meaning, when he says the Eucharist, even though he doesn't believe in it, it will happen. And I started to get into intention then, because of the fact that you know sacraments demand intention. It's not just like a shotgun blast that you just say the you know the words and just everything around you you know it, it happens. It's not. It's intention. And this was starting to bother me then about about our orders, because intention to ordain a Catholic priest is not intention to ordain a, uh, an Anglican back in, you know, Reformation time, you know, England, even if it was a Catholic bishop that laid hands on that Anglican minister, the intention could not be. And that snapped it for me. It was just like, oh, my goodness. And, and it, just, it just fell apart. And I... I no more argued on COM because I just sat on the commission minister. I said, fine, if that's what you want, then have at it. The church was a mess. My diocese was a mess. The ACNA, the, the overarching, you know, province was a mess. Uh, you know, I'd already figured out the Anglican communion is not a communion. It's a federation. It's a federation of many disparate types of little organizations. Some call themselves Catholic. Some call themselves Protestant. You know, all sorts of different so I'm in a federation that does not have valid orders. And you would think it would have occurred to me a little sooner than what it did. And yeah, I know I'm a little thick. Um, <laughs> well, then it becomes just a panic. I, I'm, when, you, when you understand, because, you know, once you understand the catechism of the Catholic Church, but yet don't convert, that's a mortal sin. Before I could claim ignorance, 
And that's, you know, with Vatican II and all that, and all that. but, you know, we talk about the fact that, yeah, there is salvation, you know, within other churches because there is that invincible ignorance that, that they don't know, and therefore you can't expect them to know because their ministers have, anyway, let's not get into that. But you understand where I'm going there and the fact that now I understand, as a, I understand that my orders are not valid. And I understand that not only is my church uh, a mess, so is the diocese, so is the ACNA. It just, and, and so for about six months, I was frozen. I was absolutely frozen. I was a horrible rector. Um, now, mind you, saw the sick, you know, said mass or, you know, said the, all that stuff. I, I, I was not that kind of horrible rector, but, you know, I, I was just stuck because I couldn't make a decision. Because anything I did, I said, I, I'm not staying here. Why, why do this? Why do that? You know, with the, with the issues that I was facing, there was going to be a lot of turnover. I was really going to have to make some changes, you know, kind of like just, and I just said, I can't do it. And my, my senior warden at the time came to me and said, who was president of the church council, senior warden, came to me and said, uh, something's wrong with you, Father. And I said, yeah, how do you, you know, why, why would you say that? And knowing that, you know, in my mind, I'm melting down for crying out loud. He said, um, you know, really, I want you to make a decision now. Are, are, I, can, I can tell you're thinking about leaving. You need to either make a decision to be our rector or, or to leave. And I sat back in my chair and I, I looked and I heard just as clear as a bell, here's the door. And I quit. And I said, you're right. I resign. I walked out with, um, without much, even a hope of income. Um, I told Stephanie before what I was saying, so I don't think I'm doing this all just in a vacuum. Uh, my wife, you know, knew what was, what was going on. Uh, she was ready to go to the Catholic church. I was ready to go to the Catholic church. Um, and we assumed that God would help us with income. So that that's where I left. That's a fantastic moment there. I mean, that's amazing. And I, I talk to guys like you, Father. I talk to former Anglican priests, some who have who have remained, who have sought reordination, you know, as Catholic priests, and some who are who have remained as lay laypersons for now. And I mean, it's no small thing to have an income and to have stability and a family. And to, and to leave that like so many of you do. I mean, that takes an immense amount of courage uh, to do that, not knowing what would come next. Um, so thank you. Thank you for following, I mean, God's calling and then blessing us with the new ministry you find yourself in. I mean, you, your, your, uh, your faithfulness to God's calling, as scary as that is for you, then blesses others who then we get to receive you as as now a Catholic priest and have conversations like this and bless our listeners. So thank you for that the courage that you that you had back then. Where did you go from there? Because you you are now before me. I can see you. Listeners can hear you. You're in a Roman collar. You're a priest. Your father Scott. Uh, you're serving in in a, in a Catholic church now. You you left the Anglican Church with with no hope and no idea of the future. So what happened in the intervening time there? I mean, yeah, I kind of 
I kind of assumed there would be a lot more out there than <laughs> there turned out to be. I left, and uh, first of all, I took two weeks off. It was it was a difficult two weeks to take off because I'm not the type that when that when that kind of problem is hanging over me, it's hard for me to sit still. But I was so emotionally drained. I, I said, I'm going to give myself two weeks. Just take it. You know, take the two weeks. I know I'm spending money. I know there's a time clock on our savings. You know, I understand that all. So I took the two weeks. And interestingly enough, in two weeks, uh, uh, just a saint from my former parish at St. Peter and St. Paul called me up and said, you used to do CAD work, didn't you? And I said, yeah. He says, well, I got a program for roofing that I need somebody to learn. And I said, sure, I'll learn. He said, you can do little hourly stuff for me. And I said, oh, great. And it was it was a program that, that was a roofing estimation program. It was, it, was, it was a construction estimation program. And I kind of took it on as, well, okay, I'll do this just for some money. I mean, any money's good, but it will never replace my income. So I took it. I went on YouTube and I learned how to, how to work the program and it was no big, no big deal and started to, to crank out roofing uh, estimates. And at the same time I took, um, I went to, I went to the Catholic diocese here and I thought maybe I'd be a good DRE or something like that. And they said, not with your education. Thank you very much. Uh, and so I was kind of like, Oh no, well, if I can't do that, well then, then I wanted to be maybe a chaplain at a hospital. Cause I'm, you know, 18 years of experience. I, you know, why not? And uh, no, not so much, because when you give up your orders, then you don't have any standing in, for any chaplaincy. And so I had to come to the realization that I had I was nobody and um, became a, a, a home inspector trying to go into my own business, um, because obviously with my family background, with my education, you know, home inspector sounded like a good spot. And that really didn't work. Um but this roofing thing kept on just coming along and I got uh, very proficient at it. And again, long story short, I finally went into the, the, the guy who, who asked me to do the program was not the, the owner of the company. I went in the older, owner of the company and I said, you know, I think I got this down pretty good. I think it's time. Maybe you could hire me and to my surprise. He said, sure. And so I became a roofer and, uh, and that's, that's what I did for, for the couple years and uh, very stressful. I don't know if anybody out there is an estimator, but, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with millions of dollars worth of roofing and every nail costs money, oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. So very, uh, I got very good at chewing gum. I had gum at my, my desk. That's the only way I could deal with the nerves. It's put a ton of gum in my mouth and just sit there and chew as I was estimating and trying to get the numbers, which by the way, you remember back the first this this interview when I said I can't do math to save my life? Uh, yeah. Me and Excel became very good friends because Excel does the math for you. And I would set these they're not elaborate because I'm not that smart, but I would set these these big spreadsheets up that would I could basically put it in the square and the, the, the price per square and it would give me the result. And that way I didn't have to do the math and uh, the Lord blessed me because believe me, I could have made huge mistakes and didn't, uh, but he got me through that. And so for two years I was a roofer um, and in Texas having to climb up on roofs. I also found that I was an old roofer because 110 degrees on a white TPL roof. Let me tell you, it gets a little hot up there. And uh, there were more than once I had, I looked around and, and everybody was looking at me going, what is your problem? You look tired. You're sweating. And I'm, yeah, I'm an old man. Yeah, leave me alone. And anyway, I had to go down and get in the shade. So embarrassing sometimes, but 
And of course, now I just gave that story for all your your listeners. So anyway, <laughs> that was my tenure as a roofing guy. And all the while, though, also I was in the process for the ordinariate, uh, which is a discernment process. Uh, you go down to, to Houston to the cathedral uh, four times and uh, for a week long. Then you have uh, in the interim between those four times, you have uh, led reading and uh, you simply uh, read. Fortunately, my, my seminary education is accepted um, by Bishop Lopes. And so that that helped a lot. And the fact that I didn't have to start from from zero or go back to a seminary somewhere, I could just simply uh, read and um, and go to the intensives and uh, learn a ton of canon law, which I am still trying to get more and more proficient at. And, uh, and, and lo and behold, right when I, I really thought that I was going to be a roofer forever, um, uh, Bishop Loves called and said, uh, yeah, we've got a, we've got a date for you for the trans for the, for the diaconate and, uh, transitional diaconate and for the priesthood and, and, oh yeah, here's where you're going to be stationed. So it, it happened very quickly. <laughs> what does it tell me? Like, I mean, I want to dig into some other parts of this in a second, but tell me that feeling. What does it feel like? And this is not too, this is rather, I mean, pretty fresh. I think October end of October you was your official ordination as a, as a priest. Uh, what does that feeling feel like? And this is kind of what you, I mean, were thinking of, you know, your whole life as a, as an Anglican priest, you kind of felt this sense of, of Anglican Catholicism and, and being this, this kind of Catholic priest in quotes, even though you knew you didn't have maybe full communion with Rome or, or whatnot. What does it feel like to, to know that you've actually uh, come into full communion with Rome and now as, uh, you know, a, a traditional deacon and now a priest with in full communion with Rome? I mean, with nothing... No complications holding you back. No kind of mental gymnastics holding you back anymore. I, I'm thinking in, in, of those priests who are listening to this program, and I know you guys are out there. Thank you for listening, those Anglican Episcopalian priests. What does it feel like for you to have crossed the, the Tiber, so to speak, and now uh, a Catholic priest? Take us back to that, that phone call, that, that moment, that experience, the ordination. What is that like? There were, there were, you know, kind of two to three specific. I mean, first of all, I came into full communion with the, with the Catholic Church after I gave up my orders in the Anglican Church, and that was freeing. That felt like just tons of bricks lifted off my shoulders. And, and I know that's also a saying that's used way too much. I, I kid you not, that's, that's exactly how it felt. People even saw me and said, you seem much happier now. And I'm like, really? Was I that bad? <laughs> and, and, and you know, basically, what I was on, I was on the road to be that same angry, angry uh, priest that I that I knew back when I was a kid. You know, I, that was going to be me in a couple of years because of the fact that it was just so much pressure on me. Uh, and then, quite honestly, when it, when I was getting ordained to the diaconate, it happened again with the priesthood. It's just absolutely humbling, and it's this feeling of I am not worthy to be here I, I because I, I had helped the Catholic church up since I was a kid. It was the church. And we talked about the mental gymnastics it takes to, to go through that. Um, but you're there and he's Bishop Lope. He's going to ordain me a Catholic priest. And you do, you get this wave of, I, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not worth it. 
absolutely, I'm, I'm going to be in the embarrassment of all the Catholic Church because I these guys are. I mean, this is this is the big league. I mean, this is these are the real the real deal, and it, it was very humbling. And quite honestly, then it became very real in a in a efficacious type of real, uh, not in the this is real, man. No, I'm talking in you. I've been through, obviously, two ordinations in the Episcopal Church. I've been through now two ordinations in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. The God, is, God was present in his own way in the Episcopal Church. Don't get me wrong. Uh, ministers in the Episcopal Church are, are, are called in their own way by God. It would be a much longer story to get into. Well, are, they, are, they, are they all called to the Catholic Church? I think so. Let's not go down that rabbit trail, though. However, in the Catholic Church, I was ordained, and, and of course, that, that goes very quickly. You know, you, you, very humbling experience. Uh, the next day, you're saying Mass. And actually, the next day, I was saying Mass with, the, uh, with, with, with basically my uh, superiors in the, in the ordinary. My first Mass was with them, and I'm going, oh my gosh, you know, you got to be kidding me. And I didn't screw it up too horribly bad. It was, it was illicit Mass, but anyway... <laughs> Um, it wasn't pretty in places, but it wasn't bad. Well, then the next day I'm in the parish. I'm in my parish saying daily mass, which I've said hearing daily confessions, daily mass. And, um, and honestly, it's one of those things that I, I know the ministry, the ministry is, is a lot of the same. You see the sick, you, you know, like we said, you know, go see the sick, go take care of the poor. All that stuff is the same in any church, Anglican priesthood and the Catholic priesthood. The difference is with the sacraments in the fact that there is something else there. I, I, I'm telling you, saying Mass in the Anglican Church is not the same as saying Mass in the Catholic Church. And everybody out there, well, duh, you know, theologically, they can tell me exactly why, you know, what the difference is. I'm saying as far as, as actually being that person doing those two services it is a market difference. And you, you know for a fact that what you're doing is helping people. Hearing confessions is helping people. It's not just, it's not just people coming in your office, which are back in the Anglican Church with their problems, and you would do the best you can, and sometimes you pull your hair out just because people can get frustrating at times. Or It's actually you know, forgiving their sins and therefore helping them on the way to Christ, and you know what you're doing is real. And that's about as vocal as I can. I can't, it's hard to put in words. But it is that that knowledge that that this is markedly different. And I have not had um, this much, you know, happiness in my ministry in, in well, well, forever. I mean, because I've never had this much. I was happy in ministry at, in Wichita Falls. I was happy in ministry in, in in the missions before that. I was happy in ministry being a youth director, absolutely. Um, but it's kind of like you you the fulfillment of all of all that calling that all my life that's been leading up to this. You would think I would have a letdown and say, okay, I'm here. Well, you know, well, no, it, it's not. It just continues every day to be a wonderful experience. And, and I pastor a little bit of church that's got its own little problems. And so don't think I'm in this, you know, I wasn't putting the, you know, 
and quite honestly, ordinary, it's so small. It's, there's not many churches that are just the perfect, you know, money's no object and everything's great. You know, I mean, you know, we've got our own problems. So it's, um, it's not that it's, it's, it's just a very, very happy, humbling experience. <laughs> That's fantastic. I've had a number of, of people on this show to unpack what the ordinary it is. So if listeners are curious unto, as to what the ordinary exactly is and how it was formed and, and what it, what it, is composed of uh, Father James Bradley, the fantastic interview with him a number of episodes back. Go look in the archives and because he really explains it very very well. He was there at the beginning and kind of the for yeah. <laughs> right in the door. It's a great story, but I wonder for for you, Father. So I'm, I think of those Episcopal priests, those Anglican priests who are there, who are still holding down the fort. Who see the importance of the of the patrimony. Who see the importance of of the Book of Common Prayer and the, the way the Anglicans do certain things and see those as distinctive and important but at the same time there is there is that that overarching kind of i don't know mental stress or gymnastics they're doing to kind of say yeah i'm part of this catholic church i don't have to join that church to really be catholic i can be catholic over here and be an anglican i mean i i hear from more and more of these people who, who are as the church as the Episcopal Church, as the Anglican Church drifts further and further apart. I mean, you mentioned the idea of different federations. I'm thinking even here in Canada, right? We have we have certain bishops who say, you know what, the larger communion says this, but I'm doing my own thing. And everyone in my in my little territorial parish here, or my territorial um, diocese, I'm the bishop, we can do things this way, right? Even within the same country, there's bishops doing different things and all part of the same communion, but just slowly eroding and and. and breaking away from this united, even Anglican church, never mind how we can associate with, with the, the church in Rome and the Catholic church. There's, there's, to me, in my mind, such this stress of trying to hold all these things together. I mean, what would you say to somebody who's there still holding that fort down and, and kind of feeling like, well, we're doing okay here. We can still be Catholic and be Anglican. You you mentioned your own your own uh, process this this idea of making this church more Catholic and then bringing it back to Rome. I mean, that's that's certainly one option priests could be thinking of. I mean, just just in general though, what would you say to those priests who who are still there, who are still there holding the fort? I mean, what words of encouragement would you have for them to maybe consider coming back to Rome? Or you had that hindsight, you had that experience. What would you what would you tell them? Well, the encouragement was what I just described of the Catholic priesthood, I will say. But the words I would probably, you know, tell those who are still questioning and still wondering if they should come to Rome is what you can do for your people. It's all about being a shepherd. Being a minister, you're a shepherd. And if, and if that's, you know, that's that's why you're a minister, you're their servant. You, you shepherd them. You can't, when you have a congregation that has no truth, uh, meaning any Anglican congregation, you can line them all up and you can go down the line and say, what are we doing in mass? Remembrance, you know, is it body and blood of Christ? You know, soul divinity. I mean, it, what, what, what is it? And you would probably get, if you had 400 people, you'd probably get at least 300 different answers. And you might say, well, what's the big deal about that father? I mean, yeah, so everybody has their own thought. The problem is as you're shepherding, Remember, you're shepherding. Keep them in. I mean, if you got your sheep all over the field, the wolf's going to pick them off. That's why sheep stay in, you know, a flock. That's why. That's why back in, in biblical days they built, you know, pens 
out of the wood uh, that they found, trees and bark and everything else. They could put a brush. And then on the door, they would lay down. And that's what he meant by it. He would lay his life down for the sheep. And that's exactly what he's talking about. Wolf's got to come over me to get in to this. The sheep are everywhere. You, you, you sit there as a pastor and watch them get picked off. Well, did you hear about the, you know, this person over here, you know, well, they got divorced. That's the third time. And, you know, oh, it's a shame and it's a real tragedy. And as a pastor, you're going, my goodness, how sad. And what am I going to do about it? And and then over here, you got, you know, well, they've decided that they're gay. And then you go, oh, my gosh, you know, none of this stuff can you do anything about because there is no truth. There is not one truth. There is not one catechism. The sheep are scattered. And therefore, as a pastor in the Anglican Church, you look out there and you go, well, I can't bring these sheep together. So I guess what probably you should do is bring as many together as you can and come into the ordinary. That's that. I mean, that that would be mine is you can't. I mean, what I learned at St. What I learned at, at various churches that I was at is that some Anglicans are simply, they're, they're not interested in what you have to say as a pastor. And that's hard for a pastor to take, uh, but it's true. And therefore, you've got to understand that some of these folks aren't coming to the Catholic Church right now. It's just God's time is not yet for them. Not lost. I'm not saying they're, they're instantly damned or anything like that. I'm just saying they're not ready yet. Gather what you can as a community and come to the Catholic Church. That's 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 the way. <laughs> Very well said. Very well said. Father, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Uh, I appreciate your, your patience and our technical snafus at the beginning and this fantastic conversation. I think it'll be a great blessing to lots of the listeners, um, especially those who are, who are discerning a call to the Catholic Church and various roles in the Anglican and Episcopal Church. Uh, many of them are out there. I know you're listening, and, and thank you, friends, for, for uh, joining us in this discussion. Uh, where can people go to um, – I'm going to link to this the story from the Coming Home Network that you wrote in the show notes for this mm-hmm. show. Um, you have a blog, I believe. Are there other places you want to point people to go to to follow you, to read more about you? You'll be appearing at some point on the Journey Home, I'm sure, because all the guests on this show end up being poached for the Journey Home program with Marcus <laughs> Grodi. So, so, so sit by your phone and wait for that phone call. They'll inevitably be wanting to speak with you on television, EWTN. So. I don't know why anybody would want. I don't know why you want to. <laughs> That's a great but, conversation. But but yeah, um, I you know my blog is seekingthetruth.blog, and um, and that's you can find me there. Um, um, Saint John, if you just Google Saint John Vianney, Cleburne, Texas, you'll you'll get our website. Um, that is basically an informative, you know, information website. Uh, it should soon have links to my blog, um, and you can kind of keep in touch there or. Uh, from that from that website, you can get in touch with me personally. You know, give me a call. I don't mind. That's what I'm here for. So, um, by all means, uh, right now I'm I'm going through some phone gymnastics of my own, and the fact that my phone doesn't seem to want to work. But uh, we're going to get that fixed tomorrow. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Father, I want to say thank you. God bless you. God bless the fantastic ministry uh, that you are are doing now as a Catholic priest and have done. Thank you for that. And uh, thanks for being here uh, this week on the show. Thank you so much. 
thank you for your show. And I really, really do enjoy it. I'm glad, I'm glad you found me because that way I found your podcast. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> you bet. Thank you. God bless. God bless. Thank you once again for tuning in to The Cordial Catholic. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. I loved having it. It was a really fantastic one with Father Scott. Great story, great storyteller. And I feel very blessed and privileged to bring you guys these kinds of stories. So thank you. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website. Cordial Catholic on Twitter. The Cordial Catholic on Facebook. And YouTube.com slash Cordial Catholic. Our brand new YouTube channel. Kind of launching that slowly on the side. We have some interviews coming up that are being filmed for YouTube, so we're slowly going to branch out there as well and start producing video versions of these podcasts too. That is possible thanks to our patrons at patreon.com slash cordial catholic. Thank you guys for making that possible. And one-time donors at paypal.me slash cordial catholic. Thank you so much, guys, for your support. Email me at cordialcatholic at gmail.com with your feedback. I love hearing from you guys, hearing who you are, where you're listening from, and why why you continue to listen. I write back to all those emails as soon as I can. I've got a ton lately. I have a big amount piling up there, but I promise you, I will write back to all of your feedback. And thank you for your feedback, too. It's so, so valuable. Guys, Thanks for listening. Please know that I am praying for you. Please pray for me too. And I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks so much, guys. And God bless. Has to offer. And see that as being, see that as being an, I don't know what that was. (laughs) Was that on my end? Yeah. You'll have to edit that out. That was on your... Demon. (laughs) Goodness gracious. Okay, I'm going to start that again. I don't know what the heck that was. Oh, pray for me after the show. Amen. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.